We love a comeback story. We love a comeback sports story. I mean, how many of you noticed last night that the baseball bows, the UH, down in the bottom of the ninth, came back to win the victory over Santa Clara? The sports page today, one of the headlines was comeback and a clinch for Hawaii. And that was speaking about the men's volleyball team last night. They were playing UC Irvine. We were watching it. And we lost the first two sets. And I have to confess, I thought it's over. But it wasn't. Our volleyball team came back to sweep the next three sets and won the victory. That's exciting to me. But much more exciting to me is when there's a marriage that is on the brink of divorce and that couple thinks it's over, but it's not. And there's reconciliation, and we've seen that time and again. Or when someone has an illness and it looks really bleak, like Johnny Ibarra in December, who had a stroke, and we asked our church family to pray, and then he was on life support, and they said, it's over. Just, well, disconnect him. But the family said, no, uh, the sister's coming from the Philippines, and wait three, four days until she comes. Really? Yes. Okay. And she came, said her goodbyes. They disconnected him, and he revived. I talked with him the other day when he was sitting there eating. I mean, it wasn't over. That's the truth that we experience when we follow Christ because more amazing than any of those stories is his story. I mean, Jesus, who was crucified, placed in a cold tomb with a stone rolled in front of it, and that tomb was sealed, his disciples concluded, it's over. But it wasn't. And he came bursting forth from that tomb. And those disciples discovered when you're following the Son of God, it's not over, even when you think that it is. Now, some of you are here today, and in some area of your life, you think it's over. And I want to challenge that thinking today as I encourage you to put your faith in the risen Lord because he changes everything. We need to understand that our view is transformed when we bring the risen Savior into that view. The gospel writers all talked about it. The four gospel writers wrote about this comeback from the dead. And that's what I want us to consider this morning from Luke's gospel. You see, Luke tells a story of two men, and I'll relate it briefly, and then we'll return to it and and see what we can pull from it, what the applications might be for us today. And here's who I want to consider how it would apply to your lives. Believers, those of you who consider yourselves followers of Christ, there's a message in this passage for you. And unbelievers, those of you who've not yet come to faith in Christ, I want you to consider what the Word of God says here and how... God might be speaking to your life through this passage. But first, the story. It's Sunday morning. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, are behind closed doors in an upper room in Jerusalem. It's dark, it's bleak, and these have been days of despair ever since Friday. Because Jesus, whom they'd put all their hopes in for three years, is now dead, crucified, buried, And there's 
discouragement, depression, there's anger, there's grief. Maybe there's some accusations and blaming that are happening. And now it's early Sunday morning, and there's been a commotion. Women slipped out early. They didn't even know they were going, the rest of the disciples. And they come bursting back in and talk about stone being rolled away, an angel speaking to them about a resurrection. A couple of the disciples, Peter and John, they run out of that upper room and go to the tomb and come back and talk about, yeah, it is empty. The, the stone's rolled away, and we didn't see him, but it's rolled away. And there were a couple of the disciples there, had been there since Friday, said, we need to get out of here. We need to go take a walk. And so they go and walk to Emmaus, seven miles away. Didn't go to the tomb, by the way, to check it out. They went to Emmaus. And while they're traveling, a stranger comes alongside and begins walking with them. It's Jesus, the risen Lord. But they don't recognize him. And he asks them what they've been talking about along the way. Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening these days? They ask him. And what? And they relate to Jesus what's been happening these past days to Jesus. And then they come to a place along the way. But before they do, Jesus says, why did it take you so long to believe? I mean... He opens the scriptures to them and explains to them how the Messiah had to suffer before he could enter his glory. So they come to this village and it looks like Jesus is going to continue on and they say, it's getting dark. Why don't you come in with us? And so he comes in and they sit down at a table. He breaks bread and their eyes are opened. And they see, this is Jesus. And then he's gone. He vanishes. And they can't stay there. They get up and they run back to Jerusalem, burst through those open doors, and they tell the disciples that they've seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus, but not until the disciples said, he is alive, and he appeared to Simon today. Wow, what a story. So what? So what does that have to do with you and me here 2,000 years later? That's what I want us to consider as we look at four applications from this story that Luke relates. And they're in your outline. Here's the first. We can't see Jesus when we're focused on ourselves. You believe that? It's really true. We can't see Jesus when we're focused on ourselves. In verse 15, chapter 24, here they are on the road to Emmaus. And it says, while they were talking and discussing... Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Why couldn't they recognize him? He said their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Did God do that? Was that a miracle? Possibly. He certainly could. But I suspect they couldn't see Jesus because they were preoccupied with themselves. They were focused on their own circumstances and their own grief. And they couldn't see beyond that to see Jesus was the one who was traveling with them. No, they were sad. That's their focus here. Maybe some of you can identify as you 
consider your own circumstance or situation. I mean, it may be grief that's consumed you. And sometimes it's devastating grief because of a loss that's happened where we've lost a loved one. It's normal, that's natural, but here's the problem. Sometimes in the midst of that, we're so focused on our loss and our grief and ourselves, we can't see Jesus in the middle of that. He's there, but we don't see him. Maybe it's even a trivial loss that we've had. Lost my cell phone the other day, and we can get all upset and bummed out and not even see that Jesus can even use this for his purpose, for me to trust him. Sometimes it's anger because we're disappointed in something, we've, we've been frustrated, we've been hurt or betrayed, and that becomes our focus. And bitterness can come to identify us, and we don't see Jesus at all in that circumstance, do we? Maybe it's fear. It's gripped us. We had a, just a plan for the future, but now we see that it is fading away and something is threatening us. Maybe it's financial difficulties or challenges that we've experienced. Somebody's uh, leaving us. It's a broken relationship, and we're afraid of the future. And we can't see Jesus because we're so focused on our fear of loss. Sometimes in our quiet moments, and this is true especially of unbelievers who will confess that in their silent moments as they contemplate the brevity of this life and think about a next life, there's a fear of death. That just holds us in bondage, according to the Bible, until we come to know the life giver. It can be uh, fear of losing a loved one because of a doctor's diagnosis. And it grips us. And that's all that we can think about or see. But we don't see Jesus. Folks, we can't see Jesus when we're focused on ourselves and our sorry circumstance. Secondly, we don't believe Jesus understands when he's the only one who does. So... so they're speaking to Jesus, and, and he's asking, uh, what's this about? And, and they're just looking sad. And one of them named, named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? He's playing along. I mean, they're asking Jesus if he doesn't know what's happened these days, and it's, he's the one that it happened to, right? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet in mighty and deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. I mean, here they're explaining this to Jesus, thinking this guy doesn't understand when they were hoping this Messiah would be the one that would redeem Israel, that Jesus would be that Messiah. And in fact, they didn't think he understood when they didn't understand. 
that he came not only to redeem every believing Jew, but also every believing Gentile down through the ages who would put their faith in him. Now, when they were talking to Jesus, you might say that was a prayer because he was God in flesh. They didn't say, sheesh, don't you get it? But I mean, that's literally what they were expressing from their hearts. Sheesh, I mean, you've been here all these days and you don't know what's been going on in Jerusalem. When you pray, do you, do you think that about Jesus? Do you talk to him that way? Sheesh, Jesus, don't you get it? Don't you see what's happening in my life here? And by the way, it's okay to do that. The psalmist talked like that, but we wouldn't. We're usually more respectful when we talk to Jesus, even when we're bummed out at him because he isn't changing our circumstance. But usually, we're not going to say that to him, but we are saying that to him because we're often not thinking he understands as we go about every effort we can make to fix the circumstance or change that other person without really looking to the one who does understand, believing that he does. One of the challenges that we've been facing as a church in the last several years, some of you know this by experience, is parking. And uh, we have been renting parking lots. We've been working with the library. We've been doing all kinds of things to gain more parking. Uh, in the last year or so, the Queen Liliokalani School, which closed after 99 years in 2011, has become a DOE, Department of Education facility. And that's great. And they put in a brand new parking lot. Oh, this is wonderful. We've leased those parking lots in the past. And so talk to them, and no, we can't do that. Okay, and so what can we do? And we've been thinking about all kinds of things, I have anyway. Uh, maybe talk to the superintendent of schools, uh, talk to her chief of staff, uh, maybe our councilman, maybe our representative, senator, maybe the governor, let's go to the governor. And somebody said, why don't we pray? Oh yeah, let's pray about this. And we have been praying about it. Our staff's been walking around the block over here, QLS, praying that God would just open that door. Our elders have been praying. We put it on the prayer vine. We ask you to pray about that. And um, here's the thing. Over the last 20 years, we've seen God just do some amazing things here in the lives of people from here to the ends of the earth. We have seen God, as we've had a vision to build a home on this block to serve our community and house our growing family, uh, make one uh, property after another become available. Seven of the eight properties have been provided, and God has given us the resources to acquire them and to build upon them for our expanding ministry of church and school. So God has guided through these years, and he's provided, and it's been him, and we know it is. So why should we be anxious about what he's going to do regarding parking? We can pray, and that may be the parking lot we're supposed to have to lease in a long-term way. But if not, we'll trust the Lord. We'll look to him. We'll pray. We'll just move as he leads and know that he understands more than we do what our need is. Jill Briscoe is an author. She's a speaker and has, uh, over the decades, just had a powerful ministry. We are going to give some of our Easter offering, a good chunk of it actually, to ministry to the Syrian refugees. We have ministry there in Jordan that will minister to them in a powerful way through Global Hope. 
But 20 years ago, it was refugees pouring out of Bosnia. And uh, there were many refugees who were tortured and fleeing. Jill Briscoe was one of the people that went to minister to them. And uh, they went in, visited refugees all day, and uh, she was to speak to these people that evening. They gathered in a large church. There were about 200 of them, mostly Muslim, some Croats and Serbs. The men, she said, were either dead, some were still fighting, some in the camp, but these were about 200 women, and she said she'd prepared her remarks to share with these refugees who had fled, left everything. And uh, she looked out over that group and realized, this is not going to connect. All that she'd prepared was not going to find a home in their hearts. So she just set it aside and prayed, God, help me to know what to say to these people. So she said, I just began to tell them about Jesus and how as a baby... Uh, he became a refugee. How the soldiers tried to hunt him down and kill him. And how his parents took him and fled by night and went to a land they'd never been to, to Egypt. And then working her way through his life, she came to that final week and talked about how they took him and they tortured him and they whipped him. And then they stripped him naked and put him on a cross. And she said, those pictures you've seen aren't realistic. He was naked as he hung on that cross in total humiliation. And then he died. And he left everything for that suffering. And then she went on and told him about the resurrection, the good news of that. But she said, I know that you understand what he went through. And they connected. It was clicking with them. She said, I know that you've left everything when you fled, and I know that many of you have been stripped and tortured, and you have suffered greatly. And, and you need to understand that he understands what you've gone through. And here's the thing, she said, you did not choose to do that. He did. And he did that for you so that your sins could be forgiven because of his death on the cross, and you could have life forever because of his resurrection life. She said, he's the only one who really understands. He's the suffering God. You can give him your pain. And she said, many of those women, when they heard that news, just fell to their knees with tears streaming down their face and lifted their hands in surrender because they understood here was a God who'd suffered uh, even more than they suffered and understood their pain and could receive them. Folks, you need to know, whatever your circumstance, whatever is happening in your situation, he understands. He understands infinitely more than you do about it. And not only that, and this is something we can't see, but he certainly does. He can use the pain, he can use the suffering, he can use the circumstance, whatever it might be, the fear, the guilt, the anger, if we'll surrender it to him for our good and his glory. He can change our heart, he can change our attitude, and sometimes he'll change our circumstances as we want him to, and sometimes not. 
because he knows in the long run this will ultimately prove for our good and for his glory. We can see him in our suffering, in our circumstances, and we can trust him because we know that he understands. Here's a third application. We refuse to believe when the evidence is right in front of us. And by the way, remember, I'm talking to believers, followers of Jesus, as well as unbelievers here. We refuse to believe when the evidence is right in front of us. These two disciples are talking to Jesus, and they continue and say, but also, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. That was the emphasis, but him they did not see. There was evidence. The report of the women. But didn't they believe that? And then Peter and John who'd come back saying, yes, they verified that report of the women. They didn't see the angel. They didn't see the body. But these two men had that kind of evidence. And did they go and check it out? No, they went to Emmaus instead and bypassed that empty tomb in their sadness and in their grief. They refused to believe even though the evidence was right in front of them. This last week, my wife Dee was uh, checking out the Star Advertiser and she ran across a story she was telling me about and she said, but you couldn't use this in a sermon. And I said, oh, I bet I might be able to. And uh, if we can bring it up there, it's family bids final farewell to wrong woman. Val Jean McDonald in New York City had a bout with cancer, a long-term illness, and passed away in December. She had eight sons, more than 20 grandchildren, three great-grandchildren and three great-great-grandchildren. So when they had the service, uh, they came, the sons came from Manhattan, they came from New Jersey, came from Texas, Georgia, uh, Australia, they came from all over, and then about 100 people gathered for the viewing with the open casket and filed past that open casket and uh, saw mom, grandmother in her familiar pink blouse and that string of pearls that she would often wear. And then one little 10-year-old boy said, Daddy, that's not Grandma. And he explained to her, oh, yes, it is. People just look different in death, and she's been sick. And, and, and that wasn't the only grandchild that made that observation. Others did too. But the adults corrected them and let them know that, no, that, that's Grandma. You know, she just looks a little different than she did, but that's the way it is. And then they buried her, and then six days later, the call came from the funeral home. We buried the wrong woman. We still have your mother here. Oh, my God. Disbelief. There was some anger. There may be a lawsuit. There certainly was some, were some questions. And one of the questions was, how could we miss it? How could we do that? How could we? And the kids were even saying that. And we didn't believe them. We, we set them straight. And uh, somebody made the comment, in short, 
they all seen what they had wanted to see, their mom. I think when we think about the risen Lord as believers, as followers of Jesus, we often see what we want to see too. We believe he's risen, but when we're in the midst of the circumstance, we don't see him. We don't see him because we want to see uh, the problem, the circumstance, the situation that we're angry or grieved or fearful of, and that's what we're choosing to see while we're walking by the empty tomb. Go in the other direction. We do that as believers. And unbelievers do it too. Because there is ample, there is abundant evidence historically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But so many unbelievers will base their beliefs on what a college professor said or on a book that they read somewhere, on something that they've just thought about Jesus and are unwilling to go check it out, to go look at the evidence. That's not the direction I'm going in for this message, but it could be. And it could be a series of message, messages on the evidences for the historicity of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But you need to check it out if you're not yet a believer. Start with the Gospels. I mean, there are four historical accounts of this crucifixion and resurrection in this life that was lived by Jesus among us. You can go to some books. I was just thinking about that this week, that, wow, so many unbelievers that set out on a quest to disprove the claims of Christ and the resurrection have found themselves on their knees before the cross and the empty tomb. I mean, just a few that come to mind. Lee Strobel was that investigative reporter for the Chicago Journal. And uh, his wife challenged him finally just by her newfound faith to check out Christ. And so he, in his anger, was seeking to disprove Christ and came to believe. Now he's a pastor. He wrote The Case for Christ. Before him, uh, along the way, there was Josh McDowell. Some of you are familiar with his writings. He was a student at Harvard. When his Christian friends challenged him, if you don't believe... Just do your own research, and he did. And he came to full-fledged belief. And he wrote, among others, a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Before him, there was another investigative reporter, Frank Morrison, who scoffed at the thought of a risen Messiah. And he later wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? Because he knew that God did, and Jesus was alive. Lou Wallace was on a, uh, just a vendetta against Christ, and he was researching the life of Christ in the museums, uh, excuse me, in the libraries of, Eng of uh, England and Europe, when in one of those libraries, he came to the startling conclusion he'd been going the wrong direction, and he fell on his knees and surrendered his life to Christ. He wrote the classic Ben-Hur, one after another, who really is willing to look at the evidence before them and move past their preconceptions and prejudices, find that it is true. He is alive. You know, American adults today are five times less likely to pray than they were in the early 1980s. 
and twice as many do not believe in God today. This is especially true among 18 to 29-year-olds, the millennials. And this is not an indictment on the millennials. It's more of an indictment on us for failing to share this good news with them in a credible way so they can take a look at the evidence themselves. But there's a researcher, a psychologist at San Diego State University who for many years now with her team has surveyed 50,000 adults in America and uh, since 1972 have traced those trends and have found that by 2014, American adults were less likely to pray, to believe in God, to attend religious service, or to believe the Bible is the word of God. So in all of those categories, but there was one surprising find. In this study, in recent years, there's been an uptick in belief among these very people in an afterlife. They believe in heaven more and more, even though they don't believe in all these other things I just mentioned. She says, the, the researcher, Jean Twinge says, one plausible though speculative explanation is the rise in entitlement, that people are expecting special privileges without effort. People see themselves as deserving spiritual rewards or blessings due to their special status. Though an increasing number do not believe in God, do not want to talk with God, do not want to learn more about God or associate with the people of God, they want to be with God forever. Isn't that ironic? And they believe, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm entitled. Actually, the Bible says we are entitled to go to hell. I mean, that's pretty harsh, but that's what the Bible says. Jesus said that. It's not that we're entitled to. We've actually earned it. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That means separation from God. But, it goes on, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He earned life and forgiveness for us at the cross. And we don't deserve it, but it's offered to us by grace. And that is the offer that Christ makes to each of us. But we have to be willing to check out the evidence to realize it's not over. And then one more, one more application. When our eyes are open to see the risen Lord, we'll know it's not over. Can we bring that up and can we say that together? When our eyes are open to see the risen Lord, we'll know it's not over. Back to the story here. It says uh, they had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Jesus said, oh, you men, foolish men and slow of heart to believe. Didn't you understand that the Messiah had to come and suffer before he could enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Beginning with Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of our Bible. Those were the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus is telling these men, and they would have known those scriptures. That's talking about 
the Messiah. This is talking about the Messiah. This is pointing to the Christ, the Messiah, in the books of Moses. And then the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets. Do you know there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah, Jesus? And so Jesus is walking them through those scriptures, showing how this is all testifying of his suffering before his glory. Have you ever heard a Bible teacher that uh, is sharing from the Word of God and, and it's like you realize, oh, I didn't see that. Wow. That's called an aha moment when somebody just opens up the Scriptures to us like that. Can you imagine how it would have been to have Jesus open the Scriptures to, to you? Pointing to himself in those very Scriptures. That's what he was doing here on the road to Emmaus. So they come to a place where there's a village and it's getting dark and they invite him in because it looks like he's going to go on and it says in verse 30 when he had reclined at the table with them he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it he began giving it to them then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight they said to one another were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us and now they know it was him. This is Jesus. He's the one who's been speaking to us about the word. And now in fellowship, we met him. Well, they couldn't stay there. They got up. They ran back to Jerusalem. And as I say, they, they went through those doors into the upper room. And before they could even tell their story, they heard from the other disciples about the risen Lord who'd already appeared to Simon. And they came to understand it's not over. Folks, that's what I'm hoping we'll come to understand this morning, whether we're unbelievers or believers. Let me start for just a moment as I close with you as a believer, you as a follower of Jesus. Because I'm suggesting that in your circumstance... Sometimes you're not seeing him. You don't see that he's in that situation with you. You don't think that he understands, but he's the only one who does. And if you'll submit to him and see him and trust him and walk through that situation in faith, your whole attitude will be changed and very possibly the circumstance as well. But God will do in your life through that circumstance what he wants to do as you recognize him in the process. To those of you maybe that came today and you're just skeptical and unbelieving, that's okay. You may not believe in God, but he believes in you and he loves you very much. And he's speaking to you. I know he's been speaking to you through circumstances in your life, through people that have spoken to you, maybe even through the word this morning, through the spirit of God. And he's saying, check it out. Look at the evidence. Believe that God loves you. Believe that you need a Savior. That you're lost without him. And that opening your heart to see him and receive him, you can have all that he offers. Forgiveness for all your sins. His presence and power in your life for this journey that we're all on. And his promise to be with him forever. What an offer. He earned it. He paid for it with the suffering that he experienced and it was validated by his resurrection. So this morning, it's my prayer, we will realize together 
It's not over because he's alive. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, thank you that we pray to you a living Savior, not some dead God that came once upon a time or, or, or did something or said something. No, you've accomplished all that you intended to accomplish to pay for our redemption. And I want to just encourage you with your heads bowed. Believers, if you would just take stock of what your focus has been in your circumstance and, and realize we, all of us, we need to repent, change our minds, and see Jesus right in that situation. Choose to trust him. Talk to the Lord about that in your own heart now as a follower of Jesus. And to those of you who haven't yet come to faith, I just urge you in your situation to see Jesus, the historical Jesus, the personal Jesus, the one who loves you right now and is ready to forgive you and give you life, and just encourage you to open your heart to him this morning, to recognize him, and to believe and to receive. And You can begin this journey with a simple prayer, something like this, to him in your own heart. You don't even have to say the words. He knows your thoughts. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on that cross for my sins. I open my heart to you and receive you as my Savior and Lord. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I realize it's not over. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your powerful name.